This is In Conversation from Apple News. I'm Shamita Basu. Today, the lawsuit against Fox News and what it means for the future of media. It is famously extremely difficult to win a defamation lawsuit against a media company in the United States. But legal experts watching Dominion voting systems sue Fox News say Dominion has a really strong case. The voting technology company says Fox defamed it by spreading false claims that Dominion rigged the 2020 election by flipping millions of votes from Donald Trump to Joe Biden. Fox says it's protected by the First Amendment. Dominion wants $1.6 billion in damages. The trial is scheduled to start on April 17th. But even before the trial gets going, the discovery phase of this lawsuit has surfaced pages and pages of texts and emails between Fox producers, hosts, and even executives. Messages that show many of them didn't believe what they were promoting on the air. This puts it on the record and exposes the network in a way that's never happened. For Brian Stelter, this has been a surreal few months. The former chief media correspondent at CNN has spent years talking to people at Fox, mostly as anonymous sources, about the inner workings of the organization. He wrote about it in his last book, Hoax, which came out in 2020. And he'll be covering the Dominion Fox News trial for Vanity Fair and plans to write a book about the trial to follow. Brian told me, even with all the access he's gotten over the years to various Fox insiders, these newly released messages from Fox employees shocked him. Reading through hundreds of pages of documents, these texts and emails, it brought Fox News to life like I've never seen before. As I was going through these pages, I was thinking, Fox is never going to be the same. And frankly, the media world is never going to be the same. I sat down with Brian to talk about what his sources are telling him these days, whether the protections we currently have in place for the press and free speech are actually serving our democracy well, and really what the outcome of this defamation lawsuit could mean for media more broadly. It was clear to me, reporting this story out years ago, for example, during the pandemic in 2020, that Rupert Murdoch took the pandemic very seriously. He took COVID very seriously. And yet his network was, at least some of the top shows, were engaging in rhetoric that was contrary to to what he was personally doing. So he was doing one thing, his network was doing another. And I I found that very shady. I found that very strange. Mm. But I didn't know if it was a one-off. What these documents show is, once again, Rupert Murdoch harshly criticizing Donald Trump, condemning Trump's behavior after the 2020 election, saying after the January 6th riot, we're going to make him a non-person. And yet his network's still behaving a different way. To me, these documents show so many contradictions between what the stars and executives say and feel privately and what they do publicly. And that's important to know. It it may not ultimately win a legal case in Delaware, but it's important for the public to know what it's like inside these places, inside the Foxes and CNNs of the world. It's important to know how they work or how they don't work, how they operate or how they don't operate, and how the owners engage and how the moguls, these billionaires who influence what we all learn and, and find out. And that's really what we're able to learn through these texts and emails. Mm. I think it might be helpful to talk about what news organizations are and aren't allowed to say when it comes to potentially not true or or potentially defamatory statements. And for this, I think we need to do a quick history lesson. The landmark Supreme Court ruling in New York Times v. Sullivan, 
1964. Can you give like the Cliff Notes version of what that ruling established? Yes, this 1964 case provided broad protections for the American press, protections that journalists in many other countries envy to this day. Mm-hmm. Essentially, this ruling in 1964 made it hard for public figures to sue the media, for celebrities, politicians, you know, millionaires and billionaires. If you're a public figure, there's a very high bar that you have to be able to clear in order to sue a news outlet and win. You can still sue, but it's probably going to get thrown out unless you can prove something called actual malice. That's the standard set in 1964, actual malice. It means that a news outlet wrote something that they knew was false or they did it with reckless disregard for the truth. Hmm. And that's the phrase people are going to hear a lot during this trial, falsehood or reckless disregard for the truth. So essentially, this Supreme Court ruling set up a standard that almost nobody has been able to meet. I mean, yes, there are defamation cases. There are suits from time to time, but they're often thrown out because how in the world can you prove that a journalist knew something was false and published it anyway? So that high bar provides broad protection for the press, but it also has the consequence of making it a lot easier for news outlets to be sloppy. You know, you think about it this way. Uh, When I was at CNN, if I made a mistake, you know, a genuine mistake, right? So we report something wrongly. That's what New York Times v. Sullivan protects. It does not protect someone who goes out there maliciously lies and makes stuff up about a public figure. Mm. But in practice, it's even hard to prove if someone's being malicious. And that's what's really being tested in this Dominion case. Can Dominion prove that Fox acted with intent, knowing something was false, did it anyway, and thus actual malice. Right. I mean, maybe it would help to explain what changed in the media landscape after the Sullivan ruling. Well, if you think about the last 60 years of the American media, the free press has flourished. Yes, despite all the flaws about journalism, all the challenges with local news, all the business model problems, all the biases that are baked into journalism, that's all true. And yet, we have this incredibly diverse media landscape with hundreds and thousands of news outlets and a wide variety of sources in every conceivable medium. And one of the reasons for that is Times v. Sullivan. One of the Mm -hmm. reasons for that is this high bar that makes it hard to sue news outlets. You know, look, if the bar were lower and it was a lot easier to sue news outlets and win for Mm -hmm. defamation, then you would see uh, powerful people suing news outlets out of existence quite often, I suspect. Uh, The version of this once happened with Gawker a number of years ago. But those are the exceptions to the rule for the most part. And as a result, you know, again, lots of flaws in journalism, lots of mistakes are made, sometimes, you know, deliberate falsehoods get through. But it provides a kind of protection for the news media to innovate, to create, to flourish. And if you think about Rupert Murdoch and when he's on with Fox News, he's been able to build Fox on the back of a ruling like Times v. Sullivan. In 1964, when the Supreme Court came up with this actual malice standard, we were still living in the, the big three broadcast network age. In fact, we were still living in the radio transitioning to TV age. We yeah, were sure. still living in the era of afternoon print newspapers. You could not have conceived of an environment where there'd be weaponized disinformation all over social media. But in the 1980s and the 90s, Rupert Murdoch uh, was able to build Fox and then Fox News. He was able to take over the cable news uh, w- you know, world with Fox News. He's been able to build this profit machine, this billionaire profit machine on the back of favorable rulings like Times v. Sullivan. Mm-hmm. Now, you wrote about this so well in Hoax. You describe well how Fox is just so different from other media organizations. And can you describe that difference for us? 
Fox is several things in one. Uh, it includes a news operation, um, not unlike the Washington Post or the Associated Press. It has journalists who cover the White House and send news crews out to get live shots. But that's a relatively small part of Fox News. Uh, the journalists there would be the first to say they wish they were bigger. They don't have a, a lot of strength. Then there's a really strong opinion operation. Yeah, that's where the muscles of Fox are. A, a get out the vote for the GOP, advance conservative policy goals. That is the heart of Fox News. That's why Fox is the beating heart of the GOP. It circulates blood to the entire Republican Party. But it lives really uncomfortably right next to this news operation. Hmm. And I would actually add a third part of the operation. That's the Tucker Carlson arm. Tucker's now the biggest star on Fox, and he does his own thing, separate from the rest of the folks. Mm. But That's interesting, these... actually. So describe what that third thing is, though. Carlson, if it's not news and it's not opinion. Uh, to me, it's more in the realm of conspiracy. Mm. Carlson presents more of an alternative reality about the world that even the other opinion stars don't really touch. For example, about January 6th, Carlson's gone much further in trying to whitewash the riot than other Fox stars. But I like to picture it as this trio all existing uncomfortably in the same house because mm -hmm. you've got journalists who are trying to report the news about President Trump and President Biden. Uh, and then you have opinion hosts who are talking about what they want to have happen instead of what actually has happened. Right. So you have a constant clash between a small news operation and a giant opinion wing inside the same house. What we've learned in these emails and texts is that Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram, they despise the news operation. They look down on the journalists who are, who are trying to gather information and fact check uh, the, the reporting. They view themselves as being at odds or at war with the newsroom. And I have not seen that at The New York Times, at CNN. I've never experienced that as a media reporter covering this world to have basically the biggest stars, the highest paid figures, the biggest personalities root against the news operation mm. as if they are, you know, again, they're, they're in the same house, but they're trying to tear down that part. Let's take a look at some of these texts and emails that Brian's referring to here. The ones that emerged from this lawsuit that speak to this culture at Fox, where the opinion division appeared to be at odds with the news operation. In mid-November, when a Fox reporter fact-checked a Trump tweet that mentioned Fox's coverage, Tucker Carlson texted Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram, quote, please get her fired. He said that the fact-checking should stop and that it was hurting Fox's stock price. In early December, when a Fox News correspondent fact-checked some of Trump's claims on the air, Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott emailed a network vice president that it was, quote, bad for business. Now, insiders have told Brian, through his reporting, that Fox is experiencing a leadership crisis. And even with all of the issues that former CEO Roger Ailes brought, some say that Fox might not be facing a defamation suit today if he were still in charge. Ailes, the founding CEO of Fox News, ran it with an iron fist for 20 years, uh, was eventually forced out uh, due to a sexual harassment scandal. Ailes was both beloved at times, but also deeply feared by the Fox rank and file. He was incredibly paranoid. Uh, he would install protective glass around his office in New York. He would install cameras, surveillance equipment to monitor the building and the staff. Some of this just comes from uh, getting too high on your own supply. Uh, he was the prototypical Fox viewer, this aging white man, fearful of how, what America was becoming, wanting it to revert back to his childhood life. And so that paranoia, that resentment, it came through in a very personal way. It affected Fox. And I would argue it still affects Fox to this day. The strange thing about Ailes, for all of his many flaws and the, the horrific abuse that he put staffers through, there's a lot of employees there now who miss him. 
who wish he were still in charge. Because they say, and this is what Fox producers and hosts say um, privately, they say, well, at least we knew who the boss was, and at least he enforced some standards. So the view of many folks there now is this lawsuit wouldn't have happened under Ailes because hmm. they would have flirted with voter fraud lies more carefully. They wouldn't have gone on the air and used words like Dominion and Smartmatic. They wouldn't have named companies out loud that way. They would have been more careful in the way that they concocted this story about Trump maybe winning. That's and interesting. I know it's, it's, like, it's just strange when I hear this from folks, but it makes a certain amount of sense, and here's why. Ailes, when, when Barack Obama took office and Donald Trump, you know, the entertainer at the time, uh, was attacking Obama, claiming Obama wasn't born in the U.S. That was the birth of birtherism. And, and birtherism arose on the Internet and right-wing talk radio. And Ailes made very sure it did not affect Fox News. He made very sure that the hosts on Fox did not go there. They would attack Obama a hundred other ways. But Ailes, although he believed the lies about Obama— made sure Sean Hannity didn't repeat them. And what was the rationale there? To protect Fox's business, to mm. make Fox palatable to as many viewers as possible, to preserve Fox's advertiser relationships, to not alienate big brand advertisers from spending millions of dollars with Fox, from making sure companies like Comcast wouldn't cut Fox's carriage. He, he knew that you know, Fox had to stay somewhat reality-based, <laughs> even if uh, even if he personally indulged these conspiracy theories, he wanted Fox to be appealing and respectful to you know, corporate mainstream America. So that held up for years. Ailes was able to hold that line until Donald Trump started calling in for weekly appearances. And, you know, Trump would go on and he would spout the birther lies. But even then, the hosts were careful. So I find that as an interesting example of where do you draw the line? Hmm. Um, it's it's not a news line because we're not talking about reporting here. This is all about rhetoric and, uh, you know, a partisan hackery. But still, Ailes was trying to draw a line. He was trying to to protect Fox's brand. And the, the criticism ever since he was uh, forced out and ever since he died in 2017 has been that there's no one in charge at Fox anymore, that there's no leader. I mean, yes, of course, there's an executive leadership structure, but there's no one actually in charge. And that's what comes through loudly and clearly in these emails and texts. When I was working on this book years ago, I had a veteran staffer say to me, I feel like Fox is being held hostage by the audience. And, you know, yeah, do you I, buy that I, I rolled line? my eyes a little bit. I, yeah. I rolled my eyes a little bit. I, I'm thinking to myself, you know, another commentator there said to me, the audience, they've been radicalized. And I'm thinking, well, you have the power. You are the one on television. You are the one producing the broadcast. You're not a hostage to your audience. But that is the feeling that comes through in the emails and texts. It's on the record now. You have Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity and others saying that they're so worried about losing the, the grip on the audience. Well, so let me ask, though, who is creating the hostage narrative, do you think? Because it feels it's a bit of a free pass, right, to anyone who's working there to buy into this idea that, oh, the audience is driving it and we're just giving them what they need. Right. Who did it start with? I think it does start with Ailes. Yeah. It does start with Ailes and Murdoch. Because they came in and said they were going to create an alternative to the American television news media, an alternative to CNN and NBC. And so there's always been this focus on appealing to the audience by being an alternative. And I think there's a obsession with ratings that was instilled from the very beginning in the 90s that has now hurt the network, potentially the tune of billions in this lawsuit. You know, look, look, when I was at CNN, I looked at the overnight ratings every day. I was interested in, in what shows were doing well and what weren't. What I was not doing was looking at the, it's crazy these even exist. They're called minute by minutes. It's a, think about a chart up and down like a heartbeat or something. You can see every minute 
if the audience is staying or coming in or leaving. And, mm. you know, to some extent, you can predict like a commercial break, people leave and then they come back at the end of the commercial. But you could use these minute by minutes. And clearly the stars at Fox do. You can see it in the emails. These producers refer to the minute by minutes. They see that the audience wants more talk about voter fraud. That's when the ratings rise and hold and they lose the audience when they change the subject. So to use those minute by minutes to choose guests, to choose topics, mm. to push people's buttons harder and harder, to be ever more provocative. And it's not about just provocative, to move ever more away from reality, which is really what this is about, right? There was a true story in November of 2020 about Biden winning, and there was a false story designed to make Trump voters feel better and make Trump himself feel better as he watched Fox. They pushed harder and harder on the false story because of the ratings pressure, because of the fear of losing the audience, that's the kind of behavior with ratings that, you know, people have talked about and speculated about. I've never seen it in print before. I've never seen it proven. And I was either careful enough or foolish enough at CNN not to get addicted to those numbers, not to get addicted to those minute by minute. Oh, I'm sure it can be. It it does feel like, sounds like a drug when I'm reading these messages from the Fox stars. It sounds like a true addiction. They don't know how to live without this data and this connection to the audience. I mean, it's like social media for the rest of us, right? It's like, it's a quantification of your social (laughs) currency seemingly in real time or it feels like it is to you, right? A hundred percent. And then what you need in that situation, if you have access to this addictive data, is leadership. That'll say, cut it out. Don't focus so hard on that. Don't don't lean too hard on that. And look, I know at CNN and NBC and other outlets, you have leaders who are careful about this. I think what comes through in in the Dominion filings is that there wasn't anyone really in charge at Mm -hmm. Fox. Mm -hmm. Rupert Murdoch was not stepping in to say, we've got to knock this off. We've got to stop this BS from deceiving people. The head of the Fox News media, Suzanne Scott, was not stepping in to pull Maria Bartiromo back from the conspiracy theory cliff. That lack of leadership, to me, is what ultimately led to this lawsuit. Yeah. Well, now, let's talk about this lawsuit. What does Dominion need to prove exactly in order to win this defamation case? Yeah, there's been so much noise about what Tucker Carlson said, what Rupert Murdoch really thinks of Donald Trump. But none of that actually matters in the courtroom. What matters in the courtroom is whether Fox made false claims about Dominion with actual malice. Okay, let's pause here for a second, because that phrase is really important. Actual malice. That's considered the legal standard. It's not enough to say that false claims were made. To win a defamation case, you need to prove that it happened even though the accused knew that the claims were false or were reckless about whether it was false or not. Part of the way that Dominion will try to prove that Fox acted with actual malice will be by comparing what was being said in private messages and what Fox News hosts were saying on the air. For example, back in November of 2020, shortly after the presidential election, Tucker Carlson texted his producer, calling claims about manipulated voting machine software absurd. His producer replied that he didn't think there was evidence that voter fraud impacted the election. But a few days after this exchange, Carlson went on a show and suggested there could be merit to those claims. We don't know how many votes were stolen on Tuesday night. We don't know anything about the software that many say was rigged. We don't know. We ought to find out. But here's what we do know. On a larger level, at the highest levels, actually, our system isn't what we thought it was. It's not as fair as it should be. Not even close. Other big-name Fox hosts did similar things. In one text exchange, Laura Ingram called former Trump lawyer Sidney Powell a nut, 
and said that no serious lawyer could believe what they were saying. But on her show just one night later, Ingram seemed to take Powell seriously, repeating her lies about election interference. Now, legal challenges continue in a number of states. Serious questions about vote counting, poll watcher access are outstanding. But unless the legal situation changes in a dramatic and frankly an unlikely manner, Joe Biden will be inaugurated on January 20th. Now, to say this does not mean I don't think that this election was rife with problems and potential fraud. Brian says this lawsuit will also look at the guests that the network had on its programs, people like Sidney Powell, and how Fox hosts responded to them. The way this case breaks down, there are essentially 20 false statements or segments that Dominion is citing. Mm -hmm. I view it as 20 at-bats. Dominion has 20 at-bats trying to convince the jury that at least one of these constitutes actual malice. So in the lawsuit, you see these 20 instances. Most of them are TV segments. There's also some tweets, but let's take the TV segments. They are all basically conversations between the interviewer and the interviewee. Now, I grew up old school journalism where, you know, if you're an interviewer, you're supposed to ask a question and listen and then react. Uh, more often on Fox, what they were doing was setting up the guest kind of more like T-ball than baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part of the dispute here is that in the way that the Fox hosts reacted to the guests by seeming to believe it, by going along with it, by encouraging the guests to keep going, by prompting them to repeat more and more lies about Dominion, essentially Dominion says, well, look, the Fox hosts were in on it. This was the Fox hosts who were the ones endorsing the lies. Right, right. It's not a live fight. It's more like orchestrated wrestling. (laughs) That's right. Let's go back to November 8th, 2020. It's one day after all the major networks, including Fox, project that Biden is the next president. People poured out into the streets in New York and other cities. There were mass, you know, celebrations. But, you know, in Fox, the tone was obviously different. Uh, There was a sense of defeat, a disappointment. But Reality was was broadcast on Saturday, November 7th. Then the next morning, November 8th, Maria Bartiromo goes on her Sunday morning program and she has on Trump lawyer Sidney Powell. Sidney, we talked about the Dominion software. I know that there were voting irregularities. Tell me about that. And that's Maria setting up Sidney Powell to go on and on about this bogus information. That's to put it mildly, the computer glitches could not and should not have happened at all. That is where the fraud took place, where they were flipping votes in the computer system or adding votes that did not exist. We need an audit of all of the computer systems that played any role in this fraud whatsoever. So what Dominion's arguing is, by Maria Bartiromo saying, we talked about this, I know there were irregularities, she is endorsing the lie that Powell is going to advance. Mm. That's the kind of material that the jurors are going to have to assess and decide, does that clear the bar for actual malice? I see. What are the different ways in which they are being accused of defaming Dominion? Yeah, there were different lies told about this voting technology company, as well as, by the way, another one called Smartmatic. Right. Uh, One of the lies was that they were the same company when they were not. Dominion basically says there were four types of provable lies that were spread on Fox and elsewhere in November 2020. The voter fraud lie that, you know, Dominion was part of the fraud. There's an algorithm lie, meaning a reference to these faulty algorithms that were transferring votes from one person to another. There was a lie involving Venezuela 
Ayala about the origins of the company. And there's a, a lie about kickbacks, about financial irregularities. So basically, what Dominion has done in these 20 at-bats is they've said, we're going to try to prove the, the fraud lie for all of these. But the other ones, you know, the, the, you know, some of these are about the algorithm, some of these are about Venezuela. But all of these are about moments on Fox and on Fox Twitter feeds where uh, these falsehoods were spouted. And really importantly, in the pre-trial proceedings, the judge in this case has ruled in favor of Dominion to say, yes, all of this is false. All these claims are false. So Fox cannot go in the courtroom and argue that maybe it was true, that, mm. that maybe there were kickbacks or maybe it wasn't Venezuela. So we're starting from a point of these things were false. Yes. But next. But next, Dominion has to prove that key personnel at Fox knew what they were doing knew that they were making this stuff up. And, uh, you know, that's going to be an interesting fight. That's going to be a great fight in the courtroom. A lot of legal experts think Dominion has a strong case. Speaking of one uh, professor who said, look, I'd much rather be Dominion than Fox in this situation. Hmm. You know, they have a bounty of evidence. They have emails with executives of the network, very concerned about what's being spotted on the air. For example, in the Maria Bartiromo case, there are a number of interviews that she aired with uh, figures who were making up stuff about Dominion that were pre-taped interviews. And if you pre-tape an interview, then you have time to edit it, to clean it up, to fact check it, sure. to decide whether to air it. So you're going to hear the Dominion lawyers say on the stand questioning these executives and stars, but you you had time. Look, when I was at CNN, when I went through anchor boot camp, the first thing I was taught was if you're talking to a guest and they say something outlandish, especially something that sounds like a criminal allegation, you need to jump in. You need to push back. It almost doesn't even matter exactly the way you do it. You just need to interject interrupt, say something so that it doesn't seem like you're just going along with it. Right. I thought the Fox defense, I mean, at least for someone like Tucker Carlson is often, I'm just asking questions, right? That's a big Tucker Carlson move. I'm just asking questions, (laughs) which feels, I mean, once you you go back and you talk about Sullivan and you talk about protections that are in place, it feels like an awfully good way of deflecting any kind of culpability, right? Yes. And I think many Americans, most Americans would probably say they want a media environment where, you know, hosts are out there pushing the envelope, challenging powerful people, holding government accountable, asking provocative questions, even questions they don't know the answers to. We have all grown up in a society where that is the norm. That's the standard. One of the differences, I think, in the last 10 years or so has been the radicalization of the GOP, however to move away from reality-based argument, to move toward much more of a conspiracy fantasy land where, yeah, you know, maybe Biden won, maybe Trump, who knows? We'll never know. Well, Mm. some things are still knowable. Some things are still provable. Certainly in this case, you know, the 2020 election has been scrutinized by, we can't even count the number of authorities, organizations, news outlets, nonprofits, et cetera. Courts. Yeah. Courts. we, Mm -hmm. we, We know what happened. And just asking questions ends up being a very cynical and unethical stance when faced with so much evidence. Mm. And I guess that's where the messages kind of come into it, right? Because it's one thing to scrutinize what went out on the air, but then also looking at the messages being sent by some of these hosts to executives, to each other. I mean, if you have to prove intent, there's <laughs> there's some body of evidence there uh, that can show what people were thinking uh, to, to some degree. But I, I like how you pointed out earlier, you know, one of these hosts messaging another one, text messaging another one saying Sidney Powell is completely, uh, you know, not credible. Yeah. That is maybe indicative of them being hypocritical, but it's not a crime. 
right? I mean, what what exactly is the violation? That's true. And that's important here. I think Dominion, frankly, has already won in the court of public opinion. They have had a masterful PR operation. They've used their public filings, these legal filings in court that they have to file, to share all of these texts and emails, to show the hypocrisy, to show the contradictions between off-air and on-air, to show Tucker Carlson texting a producer saying there wasn't enough fraud to change the outcome, and saying Powell's lying. So you have these messages now out in the public domain. They've already won that battle. Whether they can win that in court is a very different question. Hmm. In a courtroom, they have to prove actual malice. They have to prove not that Tucker Carlson said that Powell was lying, but that one of the people interviewing Powell uh, knew it, uh, said it as well, you know, felt it. And that's, again, one of the defenses Fox is going to put up. Uh, they have a text message from Maria Bartiromo on November 20th saying she truly believed there was fraud and nothing was going to be able to change her mind. So then how could she have possibly acted with actual malice? How could she have defamed Dominion if she actually believed the lie? So that is going to be a really interesting. I, I, I wish I could be a juror. I wish I could be in the jury room. Like that deliberation. I think you'd be wholly disqualified, yeah, Brian Stelter. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's too bad. I, that jury deliberation is fascinating because mm-hmm. it, it gets to what happens in people's brains. It gets to what you believe and how, how you know what you believe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, to go into that a little bit more. You're talking about the court of public opinion. What indication do we have, if any, about how this is playing out for Fox viewers? Well, using ratings as a measurement, Fox's ratings are basically just what they were a few months ago. Fox's audience has not wavered as a result of this. It's not as if a million Fox viewers uh, have, have read about this and turned to the channel. That's not happened. Fox's audience is incredibly stubbornly loyal, and that continues. And look, Fox is not covering this controversy on the air. They're not covering the lawsuit on their own airwaves. So it's an open question about how much uh, the right-wing audience is actually hearing about this case. I think we could probably safely say that the MSNBC audience is much more knowledgeable about this lawsuit than the Fox audience. However, there is some polling, some survey data that shows that it has seeped through to the Fox base, Mm. that there is at least some awareness of this. At the end of the day, though, if you believe that our our politics in America is a life and death struggle, good guys versus bad guys, good versus evil, and and that's the way it's framed on Fox. If if you believe that this is a you know a, an absolute war for the soul of, of, of the country, you're not going to give up on Tucker Carlson just because he insulted Trump in a text message. Hmm. You still believe Tucker is there to defend your America and to defend your values. So at the end of the day, I, I think this has been. A PR blow for Fox outside Fox World. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. not inside. Uh, well, so what 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 does this all mean for people who watch Fox? I mean, where does this leave them? You know, it's a media literacy message. It's to be skeptical of what you're hearing, what you're consuming. In the same way that we think about a balanced diet and we think about what we eat every day, all of us as news consumers need to have a, a healthy, balanced media diet. Mm. And Fox discourages that. Fox's message is. Don't trust anybody else. Don't trust anything else. Just watch us all day. Everybody else is lying to you. That's the echo chamber problem. This case might go a small way toward that, you know, Mm -hmm. toward saying, be more skeptical of what you're hearing on the air. Well, so this is what worries me, though. This idea that you should question everything. I mean, that's a message that a lot of Fox opinion hosts actually endorse, right? And sometimes to a damaging effect. Mm. So it almost feels like it becomes this double-edged sword. You know what I mean? Oh, I do. This is what keeps me up at night. Yeah, I'm sure. I guess that that's my point. Like, What is the breakthrough? Is there a breakthrough? If you're saying nothing has changed on the air necessarily and nothing is really changing for viewers. Well, 
if Fox has to pay billions of dollars as a result of the nonsense that was on the air in November 2020, as a result of its breakdown of its own editorial processes, its failures of leadership, that can have a consequence. I think we would see a leadership change of the network. I think we would possibly see some of the hosts leave and be replaced. Already at Fox, there's been additional legal training. There's been refreshers about actual malice. Mm. You know, to the extent that newsrooms are always learning from what went wrong, maybe they would learn some lessons and apply them in the future. And gosh, now I sound like a pie-in-the-sky optimist. You know, maybe the media environment be a little healthier as a result of all of this drama. But that doesn't get to the, the heart of what you're saying, which is the supply and demand issue. Fox is just addressing the demand. The more interesting, more complicated part is the supply. Yeah, yeah. Why, why do folks want to spend all day and all night watching a certain form of hyper-partisan rage news? Even in the middle of the night, 3 a.m., Fox still has a million viewers. People fall asleep with the TV on and they keep watching when they wake up. The reasons for that are so much deeper than the Dominion lawsuit, right? It's about resentment and social isolation and a sense of community that's been lost in other places. And, you know, the reasons for why Fox as a product is so appealing to a certain aging audience, you know, that's something that's never going to be addressed in the courts. But at least in the courts, Dominion can try to make the case that they were wounded, that they were damaged, that there are real world consequences for televised lies. Mm. And I think that's what the last few years have been about, whether it was the lead up to January 6th and then the insurrection, whether it was the pandemic and the deaths that resulted from disinformation. The last few years have been about seeing that digital and televised lies can have real world consequences. And now what Dominion's essentially saying is we want to use the courts to make sure there are consequences for that behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, we haven't said the phrase First Amendment, I think, at all in our in our conversation so far, but we should. I mean, I think the First Amendment comes up in a lot of different contexts. <laughs> it's used to argue protections in a lot of different ways in America. And sometimes we've seen in the past few years that First Amendment rights sort of being weaponized in a way to protect behaviors that could really damage our democracy. Mm. And I guess that's what I wonder where this is going to. You know, a lot of people talk about this as a moment of reckoning, this Dominion suit. Where do you think it's leading us? Well, certainly Fox has wrapped itself in the First Amendment. And they they say, and they've said in statements repeatedly, this case is and always has been about the First Amendment protections of the media's absolute right to cover the news. They say they're going to keep advocating for the rights of free speech and a free press. Mm. So they are saying we were and are protected by this to be able to go on the air to interview guests, to hear and say things that turned out not to be true as a part of the news process. But let me go back to your word weaponized, because I think that's what this is all about. The founders, in all their wisdom, could not have imagined this media environment, never would have conjured up in a million years. This media environment of weaponized lies at scale, the ability to distort and manipulate millions and millions of people with the click of a mouse. You know, that power is something that does have to be scrutinized. And I think ultimately that's what this tug of war is about. Who has that power? What is it used for? What are the consequences? Mm -hmm. What rights and responsibilities do all of us have in an environment where we're all we are all now members of the media? I'm a member of the media. Every listener is a member of the media. Everybody is contributing. Everybody is creating content as well as consuming it. Anybody can say anything about anybody else, sometimes wholly made up. And, you know, if you're a politician or a CEO, you expect that. You kind of, it's part of the job at this point. But we've got 14, 15-year-olds 
they were victims of disinformation. But high school kids living in an environment where it's completely polluted, where there's nothing but hate and garbage about them spread out on their social media, that's not what the First Amendment was designed to protect. Weaponized lies, disinformation at scale, brainwashing is not what a free press is about. We've got to be able to draw a line between what is true and what's been reported versus what is false and what is fantasy. Hmm. And right now, there's nobody there to draw that line. It's uh, incredibly complex. But ultimately, you know, (laughs) the brightest brains are going to have to figure it out. Brian Stelter, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You can read Brian Stelter's 2020 book, Hoax, on Apple Books. We'll include a link for you on our show notes page. And if you like what you're hearing on this show, In Conversation, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. 